1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Austin Hartke. Austin is the founder and director of Transmission Ministry Collective and the author of the book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. You can get connected with Austin and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. All right. Today, we have none other than Austin Hartke with us. Austin, you do a lot of things in the world, including write write books. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other things about you, but I always have to ask, who is Austin Hartke to Austin Hartke?
0: That's such a great uh, way of introducing like having people introduce themselves. Um, So I I would say I'm uh, I'm an author. I write stuff like you said. I'm the executive director of a organization called Transmission Ministry Collective um, that is a support org for transgender and gender expansive Christians. And so that's a part of my day job as well. I am an educator. I do a lot of education with churches, um, helping them become more knowledgeable about LGBTQI2A plus people um, and trans people specifically. So uh, all those things are true about my work. I'm also a fiance. I'm going to get married soon. So that's exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. And I have a dog who I love, and I'm a big fan of all pastries and baked
1: goods. So I think those things all kind of sum up my my uh, my life. I love it. I love it. Well, you mentioned before that you are a writer and author. And uh, a few years ago, and I feel like so guilty that I didn't reach out to you years <laughs> back to talk about this book. But you know what? Better late than never, right? Uh, Absolutely. So, you wrote a book a number of years ago called "Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians." I'm super excited to chat about it. Uh, again, it was a few years ago that you wrote this book. Uh, so, you know, try to try to bring yourself back to those days uh, <laughs> when you wrote the book. What did you learn about yourself while writing "Transforming"? I, I know you've written a number of other things, uh, but was there something about this writing process years ago where you're like, "Hey, I didn't know that about myself. That's great." Yeah. I mean, it's funny because
0: I don't have to do it doesn't take a lot of work to throw myself back to that because we're we're doing an update to the book that's a second edition that's coming out um, that's right. this spring. And so I had to go through the whole book and be like, okay, what needs to change, what needs to be updated, mm-hmm. you know. So I've been very much in the in the sort of second edition mindset as I've been thinking about the book. So yeah, it doesn't take a lot to get me back there. I, I guess if I was gonna pick one thing that was like, I find I found this out about myself, is that I a lot of the experiences that I was worried were just me or just things that I had were totally not just me. <laughs> there were so many people that I interviewed for the book, um, who were like, oh yeah, absolutely. I felt that I've thought that, you know, I've had that experience. Um, and so there was a sense of like, Like I sort of cognitively knew that there were other people like me in the world, folks who were transgender or gender expansive and were like wrestling with what that said about Mm -hmm. their faith and wrestling with what their faith said about them. And so I knew that cognitively, but it wasn't until I started like sitting down doing the interviews for the book that I was like, oh, okay, these are like real human
1: people. (laughs) That's, that's incredible. You mentioned that you are kind of like doing a new edition of the Mm -hmm. book. And so you're updating a lot of things. What are some of the things that you've changed so far? I find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, so
0: there's a bunch of stuff that we added to the new edition. So there's like a book study guide and a sermon guide. There's right. a new forward, there's a new afterward, All the like a bunch of stuff that we added. Um, but the one piece of the book that I almost completely rewrote was the the third chapter that's on um, gender, gender and language, essentially, kind of like the... Mm the the basics of sort of gender 101 and mm-hmm. i almost entirely rewrote that chapter um partially because so much has changed even since 2018 so like it came out in 2018 originally a lot of the the ways that we understand gender even have like uh, have mm-hmm. expanded in the past 5 years or so um but then also because there were like as i you know have continued my work since 2018 i've met so many more people who Uh, you know, experience gender in these different ways. And I wanted to make sure that I was accurately representing them when I would write about like what Mm. we're talking about when we talk about gender. Uh, The first edition, as much as I love it, it has like a one sentence explanation of what it means to be non-binary, which is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really glad that I got to go in and be like, okay, let's expand this. I think the hardest thing about a an introduction to well any field really um but my experience with is with gender specifically is that to for any introduction you really have to give people a false sense of how simple things are so that they can like mm. get glom onto it at first right it's like you know when we teach when we teach genetics in uh, high school, we have kids doing punnett squares for like, you know, uh, different kinds of eye color. Right. And we tell them like, well, you need double recessive to have blue eyes. Um, mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. if you, if you have, you know, uh, brown eyes are like a stronger gene and so like whatever. And so we make them do these punnett squares up for eye color when in reality, eye color is not a, like just one thing or the other. Like mm. if you have one parent with blue eyes and one parent with brown eyes, you can end up with kind of a mix. <laughs>
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: so it's not as simple as that. Right. And it's the same thing for gender. Like when we are first teaching people about gender and what it is and how it works and how we live it out, we have to give a very basic explanation of things that then when people go out into the world, they're like, oh, this is way more complex than I thought it was. But you have to start simple.
1: Yeah. One of the things that you hear from the conservative side of things a lot of times is this like conflation of gender and sex. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about like the difference between those two and why that is such an important part of this conversation?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so funny. Like this is one of the ways that the conversation has been changing over the past five years is because, um, you know, when I wrote the first edition of the book, I gave that very simplistic sort of like gender is your internal sense of who you understand yourself to be, you know, it's in your brain, mm-hmm. you know, that's gender, it's how we pl- how that plays out in the world. And then sex is, you know, essentially just what's between your legs, right? <laughs> and like mm-hmm. that, it was this binary of gender versus sex. These are two very specific things, they're different, you know. And so that was how we were talking about it for a long time. And then as more and more scholars were kind of like, you know, pulling those threads apart, it was like, well, actually, maybe even that is not. The best way to present what gender looks like. So now, Mm -hmm. when we talk about gender and and when I teach about gender, I talk about gender as being a compilation of three things, one of which is your body, right? And so that's what Mm -hmm. we usually talk about when we talk about like sex or assigned sex. But it's not just your external reproductive organs, right? It's also your chromosomes and your hormones and your ability to receive those hormones as well as produce them. It has to do with, you know, your brain structure. So, all those things. But then we have your gender identity, your internal sense of who you are, mm-hmm. and we have your gender expression, which is how you express that to the world in your particular time and place, uh, because it's different across cultures and across time. So even the ways that we were explaining it with just the like genders here, sex is here, two completely you know opposite things, is even like even that is like too simplistic when it comes down right. to it. So yeah, but yeah. there's a real con- it's easy to conflate. The ideas of like your body and what your body shape is, especially when it comes to your external reproductive organs determines how, like what your gender identity is. And that's Mm -hmm. not true. And it's like, it's, it's not even true for a lot of times for cisgender people, for people that are not Mm -hmm. trans, like Mm -hmm. our uh, Mm -hmm. experience of what it is to be male or what it is to be female. If you're a cisgender person is not solely decided by what's between your legs, right? There's so much more that goes
1: into it than that. Right. I mean, like even go back a few hundred years ago to the Revolutionary War times, you know, some of these men, these founding fathers that a lot of Christians look up to. Right. And uh-huh. they were people wearing wigs and tights. And like, so uh-huh. that was the gender expression of masculinity right. then. And uh-huh. certainly that might be different now. And so it's just interesting how even the kind of people that those more like conservative folks that really want to compl- conflate the two Even they don't recognize how some of their heroes, their gender expression was very different than it is. For them now, it's just I find that really funny.
0: Absolutely. If you if you brought you know one of the founding fathers in wigs and like I don't know if you've seen like shoes from like the mid seventeen hundreds, but men's shoes had like a full on heel on them, right? Right. So like if you brought one of the founding fathers around today to any of these uh, any of these states that now have anti drag laws that are they're trying to pass, you wouldn't get the founding fathers to be able to wander around. (laughs) Yeah, and they're
1: probably you know they're probably certainly wearing makeup or you know something to you know dull up their (laughs) faces. Everything. It's just, it's so weird that it's, yeah, it's just, I find that so hilarious to me. Let's talk about your journey. Uh, You open up uh, the book about your journey being trans and specifically how your faith has connected with that. Can you share a little bit about that journey? Because uh, obviously it really shapes uh, you writing this book quite a bit. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, and you know, the, one of the things I really wanted to do with the book was to highlight uh, lots of stories that weren't my own, because as, you know, somebody who is a uh, a white, trans masculine person, I obviously can't represent all different kinds of ways of being trans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I really focused on other folks in the book, but my story's in there a little bit as well. Um, and my background is um, I grew up in non-denom churches, uh, homeschooled kid, um, kind of oh, yeah. insular. And so that was kind of my background up until about middle school. Um, and then in middle school, I went to a uh, private Catholic school for a couple of years because my parents, uh, like the idea was to like, start getting us kids into, uh, others like into, um, not public schools, but into schools. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, it'll be easier for you to go from homeschool to private school with the classes that are smaller than to go directly into public school, which, you know, was a nice thought on their part, but it was a huge bit of culture shock. <laughs> So my experience um, there was kind of like, first of all, I didn't know any Catholics before that. So I got to learn about Catholic theology, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. But then as a teenager, really um, pushing away from faith because I, as a teenager, as like a 15 year old, I came out as bisexual. So that was my intro to the LGBTQ plus community Mm. um, was through understanding my sexuality. And it took like, I, I kind of real, like I had a lot of stuff I had to work through uh, because of what I had been taught about like human sexuality and specifically about how, you know, all gay people are terrible from (laughs) the group that I had been brought up in. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I had a lot of unpacking to do around that. And so I started pushing away from Christianity as a teenager um, and trying to figure out what that all meant to me. I kind of Even though I was pushing away from Christianity, I was really still interested in religion in general. And I had this sense, like, because I think when you grow up with sort of a fundamentalist background that tells you there's one right way to believe, I had this sort of feeling in the back of my head that. If Christianity wasn't the one right way to believe, maybe a different world religion was the one right way. And so maybe if I just found the right one, I'd be, you know, be correct, I guess. So I was still really interested in religion and um, like as a more of a more of a um, mental exercise, I guess, than anything else. (laughs) And so that brought me through college. and, And it was in college when I was like, actually, I think there is something about Christianity that really speaks to me and that mm. something about this story that I can't, like, I can't seem to get away from, <laughs> but in like a good way, in like mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. in a, in a sense of God saying like, hey, I want you here kind of way. Yeah. So I ended up kind of coming back to it as a young adult and then going to seminary and everything else.
1: Well, it, it, let's talk about that seminary experience. Was it during yeah. seminary that, you know, you had already come out as bi, but Had you come out as trans at that point yet? No. So I
0: was figuring out. So I like I said, I kind of like was figuring I figured out my sexuality as a teenager, but it took a lot longer for me to figure out the gender part of things because Mm. I mean, one, I just never had the language, right? I never had the language to explain what was going on with me growing up in a space that didn't talk about LGBTQ plus people at all, except for maybe saying negative things about gay folks, right? So like, I just didn't have the language to talk about what was going on with my gender. And it wasn't until I was in seminary that I started putting the pieces together and was like, Oh, shit. (laughs) Okay, this is what's going on here. Now I have this language. And it's a scary thing. Because for me, I had had this experience of coming out one time already, and I was like, I don't want to do that again. The first time mm. was hard enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I kind of had to wrestle with that. So I started coming out to like close, fam- close friends and family and stuff while I was in seminary, but I didn't come out officially, like publicly, until after I graduated. Um, okay. It was, like the week after I graduated that I was like, hey, everybody, because I didn't know if the school that I was at was going to let me graduate because they'd never had a trans person, like an out trans person oh, graduate wow. before. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to wait until I get this degree in my hands that I worked so hard for and paid so much money for and gone into so much debt for. And then I will tell people what's going on.
1: And I, you kind of mention it a little bit in the book, but obviously during that seminary experience, you're engaging the Bible a lot and you start mm-hmm. to engage the Bible around the questions that you were having during that time mm-hmm. where you're starting to come out to yourself uh, for of uh, being mm-hmm. trans. So let's talk about the Bible then. Yeah. You know, this book is in a lot of ways, a lot of your own story, but also there's a lot of engagement with the Bible. So what does the Bible say about being trans?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you- That's a small question, right? Exactly. And if you believe what the media is talking about, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. surely the Bible must have so much to say about being trans because that's what everybody is using to sort of bring these laws forward and like these bills forward. (laughs) But realistically- I think the Bible has a lot to say about gender expression, and I think the Bible has a lot to say about our bodies and how Mm. we interact with our bodies and what our bodies mean. I don't think the Bible says anything about trans folks specifically, like as we understand it today, because it's anachronistic to go back and be like, ah, yes, okay, you know, here's the here like not to say that trans people didn't exist in the ancient world because they absolutely did, but they didn't understand themselves in the way that we understand ourselves today. So a lot of times when we go back to scripture, the things that we wrestle with are like Deuteronomy 22:5, which says that men shall not wear women's garments and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so people really wrestle with that one because that's about gender expression, right? And so what does that even mean? So we have to really, I think, tease apart. What's going on there? Why was that written in the context of ancient Israel and the practices that were uh, prevalent in ancient Israel and the surrounding cultures at the time? You know, what do we mean when we say men's garments and women's clothes? Like, what do we mean by that? So like, there's a lot to tease apart about a verse like that, that doesn't necessarily have to do with trans folks, but it like it, it honestly applies as much to cisgender folks as to trans folks, but we mm. use it to bash trans folks with, you know? Yeah. So complex right um so there's verses like that i think that's kind of the main little bite-sized piece that gets thrown around a lot um Mm -hmm. of course the creation story right adam and eve uh people created male and female that's another one where people directly go to and they're like well genesis one you know 28 says 27 28 says god made people male and female therefore period end of story right that's the way things are and so looking at that and teasing it apart and going okay what is genesis 1 right is genesis 1 a biology textbook no is genesis 1 meant to uh list out every single uh being that god created no (laughs) what genesis 1 does is it gives us this whole series of sort of spectrums right from day to night light to dark land to sea all these spectrums um and they're they're put in the context of binaries but we know that they're spectrums right mm-hmm. we know that there are all these things in between these these two poles that are show, that show up in genesis 1. So when we get to male and female, it's like, okay, cool. This doesn't have to be two boxes, right? This is, if we're looking at the the whole of creation, we know that it's not as simple as that. And the people of the ancient world knew that they it wasn't as simple as that because they knew about intersex folks, right? And mm-hmm. so intersex folks, different than trans folks. Some trans folks are intersex and vice versa, but they're different. But like the ancient, you know, people in the ancient world knew about intersex folks. And so it wasn't the kind of thing where it was like, yes every single person must fit into this particular box based on you know a, a box of of what your body must look like they were much more concerned about what you do with your body right the mm-hmm. gender expression part of it and the gender role part of it so yeah there's a lot that we can say about how people use the bible against trans folks but so much of it is once you get to understand the context of it, you're like, oh, wait, that doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot there. But there's also a lot of stuff that speaks to trans folks today that doesn't necessarily have to do with that, that does speak more to like our bodies and meaning and what they mean. Mm-hmm. So stories like, um, you know, in the book, I talk about the story of Jesus and Thomas
1: post resurrection. Right. Yeah. And that Thomas. I was actually like, going to be my next question. Oh, well, go ahead and ask your next question. Well, well I, I was just going to say, you know, there is that famous piece of artwork that I've seen of, you know, the yeah. Doubting Thomas touching mm-hmm. Jesus's wounds after the crucifixion. And I've certainly seen trans interpretations of yep. that experience, uh, you know, similar to maybe like the wounds that uh, a a trans person who's gotten top surgery would have. Um, and yep. so I just, I think that interpretation is just really interesting and compelling.
0: Right. Because there's like, the that story is something that, it speaks to so many things in trans experience that Thomas says, you know, I will not believe until I touch the wounds on his side and the wounds in his hands. And the idea that Jesus comes back post like post-resurrection and his body is not all shiny and new and like perfect, right? His body still holds the the scars and the wounds that tell his story is really important for trans folks when we talk about what our bodies mean and how our bodies tell stories. And also for those of us that grew up with like a real fear of like, you know um, what our bodies will look like in heaven, right? Like, will my body mm-hmm. look like, you know, but me pre-transition or post-transition, like the idea of Jesus coming back and still having these parts of himself to tell his story is really powerful. And mm-hmm. the, the conversation between Jesus and Thomas, Where Jesus says, you've seen because you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, is such a great, like, encapsulation of the conversation that folks have all the time about, like, the curiosity about trans bodies, where people ask these really invasive questions and, like, want to know stuff about our bodies. And to be able to say, like... For you, I have a specific relationship with you, Thomas, right? So like for you, you can see this part of my body, but not yeah. every Joe on the street gets to come up to me and ask me to show off my body, right? right. <laughs> so like there's a great bit in of encapsulation of that conversation there too.
1: Mm-hmm. Again, you've engaged scripture a lot in terms of you know what it says around gender identity and expression. Two kind of questions I have around that. The first of which, what has been the most challenging passage in the Bible when it comes to you as you explore gender identity and uh, an expression in the Bible? And then what has been like the most transformative passage for you when it comes to that? Like, what's the passage that you look to and you're like... That is just so healing for me or liberating for me or transformative for me. So what has been the most challenging passage to like wrestle with and what has been the most liberating and transformative passage uh, that you've wrestled with when it comes to gender identity and expression?
0: Yeah, I think prior to really getting to dive into Genesis, I think that was the thing I had the biggest problem with, Genesis 1 and 2, because like so much of the resistance that I had when I was coming out to people. And like when I was starting to come out to myself was based in the idea that God made you a specific way. And if you change that, then you're saying, you know, better than God. Mm -hmm. And that, like I really struggled with that, that sense of like, okay, did God make my body a specific way for a reason Like, am I saying that I know better? Like, am I throwing away something that God wanted me to have? Like, (laughs) I really struggled with that. And I think a lot of trans people do. And so for me, it came to like two kind of things helped with that. One was thinking about the holistic nature of a person, not trying to split yourself up into body, mind, spirit, right? (laughs) Like realizing the holistic nature of a person. And especially when I think of like, um, Psalm 139, right. Being Mm. beautifully and wonderfully made and being created, you know, in your, in your mother's womb and what that is like, that like the, the author of the Psalms did not have this sense of like body, mind, spirit that came much later with the Greek world. Like the, the ancient, the ancient Israel, Israelite understanding, ancient Hebrew understanding of the self was so much more holistic than that. And as I sort of thought about things that way, I was like, wait, okay. Maybe God did create me this way on purpose, but God just as much created the way that my brain works and the way that I understand myself as God created like the the physicality of the rest of my body, right? So like what came what came like out of that was this understanding of like, yes, God made me this way on purpose, but God made me trans on purpose mm-hmm, <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. God made me like assigned female and I was supposed to live into that in a certain way, right? And so that uh, was really a hard thing to struggle with. But I think kind of thinking through the holistic nature of a person and the realization that like God made my spirit and m- the way my brain works just as much as any other part of me was really helpful. So that was mm-hmm. part of it. The The story that I think was most transformative for me and the, the thing that changed so much for me um, is in um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, mm. which is this beautiful welcome to... These two groups of people that are in in the NRSV are eunuchs and foreigners. And it's this, like, it's eight verses. It's not long, (laughs) but it's this this passage where essentially God is speaking through Isaiah and addressing the worries of these two communities, the foreigners, which were, at this time, it was like post-exilic Um, like coming back from the Babylonian Persian captivity, you know, recreating the the community of Israel and the foreigners quote unquote, are the people who lived in the land while the Israelites were enslaved in Babylon. So they were like the people that were there. And they were also people who came from Babylon and came from Persia and they came back with the exiles. So these people that are not Israelites that are living among Israelites. Right. And the concern Mm -hmm. is God doesn't want me, God's gonna kick me out because I'm not an Israelite, right? So that's their concern. The other concern is from the eunuchs who are people in the ancient world who usually were people that were assigned male and were castrated. But the word eunuch in the Hebrew Bible can also be used for intersex folks. So there may be intersex folks there as well. Um, And their concern is, I can't be part of the community of Israel because I can't have biological children. And Mm. so in Isaiah 56, God is addressing these two concerns, the sense of like, I'm going to be kicked out. God doesn't want me. My body is too different. My gender is too different. My culture is too different. Right. And in Isaiah 56, God speaks to them and says, like, you are welcome here and you are welcome in my uh, in my house and within my walls. So not just within the community, but within the temple. And this like reversal of the sort of exclusionary practices of the sort of time of the kings is such a huge moment of acceptance. Mm. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, okay, (laughs) like what's going on here? Why this huge change, right? From earlier rules. And so I think that piece was the piece that changed things for me because it was not only a sense of like God wants me here as somebody who whose gender is different, whose body is different, who is worried about being kicked out. God wants me here, but also God is allowed to change the rules. (laughs) Mm. And I think, you know, people outside of, you know, like process theology talks about this all the time, but like Mm -hmm. outside of that, I think people are so connected to this idea of like God unchanging forever, you know? And so this idea that God is allowed to change God's mind or God is allowed to change the rules was something that was really helpful when it was, when I was trying to figure out like, what does God want from me? What does God want from us as Christian community?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I love it. It's Part of the reason why I love the Hebrew Bible, just so Mm -hmm. full of process theology goodness. It's great. Yep. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part time or full time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash apeoplestheology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. All right. So I know you talk about in the book, you know, obviously all of this stuff around the Bible, and that's mm-hmm. primarily uh, what the book is you know, trying to do, talk, talking about gender, gender expression, gender identity in the Bible. But I am curious about the history of trans people throughout Christian history. And I know yeah. a lot of that history has never really been known because and probably will never be known because of the oppression of trans people throughout Christian history but have you done any research on like trans people in, throughout Christian history? And if you have, like, what have you found about that? I find that really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's
0: uh, gosh, there's so much that I could say there because more and more research is sort of being done every day uh, about these folks. And, and like, as we, as we look back to things like, especially in medieval times, like medieval, like within the medieval ages, like, There was a lot going on, especially within the context of like monasteries. Um, And like, so there's a lot to say, let me, I'm just like, babbling because I'm so excited about this question. So let me give you one example, right? So um, there's this great story um, from, I believe it was the fifth century um, in what's today around uh, the area around Syria. And there was this monk named Marius. Um, And basically the, the way the story goes is Marius as a young child, Marius was assigned female at birth. And as a young child, both Marius and his father joined this monastery. His father wanted to join. Marius wanted to come along. So they did. And Marius grew up in this monastery uh, as male, even though he was assigned female at birth, because that was the only way he could join, right? <laughs> so he grew up um, as male there. As an adult, he stayed in the monastery after his father died. And he, uh, there's this story about how he was asked by his, by his prior, his abbot, to take this trip and uh, to a nearby monastery so he goes on the, this trip to the nearby monastery a few days away he stays at an inn along the way he comes back to his monastery you know after the trip and a couple months later a girl from the local town from one of the inns where he stayed comes and says hey that monk there that you like sent on the trip he got me pregnant and he needs to like take care of me and the baby now and marius <laughs> Marius, rather than saying, rather than outing himself and saying, I, I don't think I could have done that, <laughs> he uh essentially says, Okay, I will take care of this woman and the child, and gets kicked out of the monastery for breaking his vows, which he didn't actually do. Um, but he gets kicked out of the monastery and um the the woman uh eventually dies, and Marius takes care of this child, but he keeps Marius keeps coming back to the monastery saying, Can I please? come back. Like, I'm taking care of this child. I'll bring him with me. But like, can I please come back to this monastery? This is my calling. And the abbot eventually, after several years goes by, lets him back into the monastery with now his own son and brings his son into the monastery as well. And it's only found out that Marius was assigned female after his death. So Marius has this whole story of like, what fatherhood looks like um, as sort of a gender expansive person um, and what fatherhood and calling to ministry and calling to contemplation looks like. And that's like a story from like the fifth century, right? Wow. (laughs) So there's stories like that, right? That we just don't we don't get to hear about. There's the uh, another one that I love is uh, Madre Juana de la Cruz from Spain um, during the time of the Spanish Inquisition. She was one of the only women allowed to preach during the time of the Spanish Inquisition. And she has these beautiful sermons about um, a gender expansive God. She understands Jesus and Jesus specifically as being more gender expansive. And she really loves the sermon, um, the bit of, of the sermon where Jesus talks about Uh, being a mother hen right over Mm -hmm, the people of mm -hmm. Israel. And she really like holds on to that. And part of the reason that we think her sermons were so sort of exploratory around gender and God's gender is because we think she was probably intersex. Um, She talked about for her whole life. She talked about how, she believed that the Virgin Mary had changed her gender in the womb from male to female because she had physical characteristics that we associate with men. So she had like Mm. a large Adam's apple and she had like some physical characteristics that looked more masculine. And so she, she believed that she had been changed. Like her, her sex had been changed in the womb. Um, And she talks about that about being sort of this person beyond gender um, or maybe not beyond gender, but encompassing of gender and that mm. allowing her to spread the word of God in a very open hearted and open way. Um, so like there's people and she, that's, you know, like what the 1500s. So yeah, um, okay. there's like stories like wow. this all over the place. So there's a really good book that I can recommend if I can find it here. Um, here we go. Um, so it's called trans and gender queer subjects in medieval hagiography. (laughs) So if you're really into that kind of thing, um, (laughs) you should check that out. There's also a book called the shape of sex, non-binary, gender from Genesis to the Renaissance. Um, and both of those books are just chock full of, of examples like this.
1: Oh, that sounds so cool. I'll definitely have to check those out. That's, that's amazing. I love it. One thing, that I sometimes get concerned about is when it comes to these conversations about queerness in the Bible is a lot of times it's like trying to use Bible passages to like defend queerness. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me the kind of same type of hermeneutic that a lot of conservative Christians are using, uh, that has gotten us into this mess to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. But what I love about the way that you engage the Bible in this book is that you engage your story the stories of the Bible and the stories of many trans people into the many stories that are going on in the Bible, and you know you, you're you're revealing the p- complexity of gender while you're with your in, with your engagement of your own story, other pe- other trans people's stories, and the stories of the Bible. And so it's not necessarily this like apologetic approach that you're mm-hmm. taking, um, but you're just doing an apologetic for transness and queerness, right? you're just simply engaging your story, the stories of others, and certainly the story of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think that just seems to be a much better approach to how we engage scripture. Can you talk a little bit about that approach? Because I just I I find it really, really wonderful and compelling the way that you're engaging scripture here rather than some time sometimes these conversations end up engaging scripture.
0: Yeah. Well thank you. I appreciate that. I I agree. I think like with transforming the first, you know, there's the intro, which has the first three chapters that kind of get get everybody up to speed. But then once we get into the stories, the first three chapters of stories are about these passages that have been used against us, right? Genesis 1, Deuteronomy 22, 5, Deuteronomy 23, 1. Like those are ones that have been used against us. And so I knew that I had to address those, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure it was up against the stories of people whose real lives are affected by mm-hmm. the interpretation of those passages. So we had to include those, but I wanted that to connect to real life experience. But then beyond that, I was like, okay, but like, (laughs) how else are we connecting to scripture? How is this affecting our lives? I feel like, depending on who I'm talking to, I feel more or less heretical when I say that I honestly uh, believe about 90% of the time that the way that a story affects people now is more important than the in original intention of the author, <laughs> mm. which is a bit of you know death of the author kind of thing um and i right. I feel somewhat heretical when I say that as somebody who is in biblical studies right
1: right but but also I think in a way it first off, I think it it's even like that's like a hyper version of the Bible being inspired, meaning that right what like the way that you're affected, the way you're changed and transformed from reading scripture that that's what's inspired, right? Right. That's the inspiration, the divine inspiration that's happening uh, with scripture. Uh, and so I think in that way, it's like, you're almost like, you're almost reinforcing divine inspiration in scripture, even more than like the people who would argue for divine inspiration of in scripture.
0: Right. I mean, I think, I guess if you, if you kind of like try to uh, graph it out, you know, like you can, you can understand the person who originally puts pen to paper or the people who started the oral tradition are the ones inspired or the people reading today are inspired or both are inspired right so i suppose mm-hmm. like the sort of the the most <laughs> inspirational i don't know the most inspirational way is to believe that both the original writers and the people reading today are inspired by the spirit
1: yeah um, the inspiration like, doesn't end with the author right exactly today. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So I think that's a great way of putting it that like, and that's why I wrote the book the way that I did is like, how are people's actual lives, their understanding of themselves, their understanding of their community, their understanding of God, how are those things affected, not just by Because there is no such thing as like plain scripture, right? Like interpretation is there from the second you start to read a word, Um, whether it's the person reading in the original language or it's the translator or whoever, nobody is reading the Bible straight out um, with nothing in the middle. And so realizing that, like we have to take into account how things are affecting people today. And, you know, I, I know Matthew Vines talks a lot in with the reformation project about sort of good fruit, bad fruit, right? Like if mm. you, what you get from this is good fruit, then, then the tree is good. If what you get from this is bad fruit, if it's um, a high suicide rate for people that have been through reparative therapy, if it's, you know, people not being able to get healthcare and dying from that, like that's bad fruit. That means we've got a bad tree on our hands. Right? So mm-hmm. like, I think, Really thinking about it in terms of what is the outcome of these stories is just as important as wondering about what the original intent was.
1: Mm -hmm. One thing that I've become passionate about over the last few years is reading. In queer theology, that it's simply not enough to be queer affirming, but that Christians should be shaped and formed by queerness, even for yeah. straight people. That mm-hmm. there's a way to be formed and shaped by queerness, even if you're, even if you're straight. So specifically for transness, and and hopefully is that, is that would that be the correct term I'm using? Oh yeah, transness, transness okay. is great. Tr- okay, so so specifically for transness, how should Christians be shaped and formed by transness, even if they aren't trans? Um, if, mm. I don't know if you think about it in that way, but I, I find that really interesting. That there's something about the trans experience that even non-trans people can learn from and be shaped by. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, how you think about that specifically for Christians and how they should live out their faith.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a a great article, and I'm trying to remember exactly what the what the title is word for word. It's something like the seven gifts that queer Christians or trans Christians bring, I can't remember, mm. or people bring to Christianity, but it's by Virginia Ramey um, who okay. is like one of the, one of the forerunners in like the eighties and nineties of talking about like queer and trans theology. And Virginia talks about how one of the gifts that trans people, gender expansive people bring is an antidote to false binaries that like we show up and we suddenly make people question all kinds of binaries that they took for granted before and I think that is incredibly important, especially in a time when we are living in a society that is absolutely polarized into these binary opposites
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that like when trans people show up, they don't just ask people like it's it's more than saying we need acceptance and we need affirmation. It's saying we actually are bringing a gift to these communities to help them unravel this sort of um, two sidesism that we've gotten ourselves into. And. Uh, I think that's uh, a really important thing for cisgender folks to recognize that these questions that we're asking about gender are not just questions for trans people. Like, I love going into churches, when I do, you know, education sessions and talking to them and talking to them about gender um, and saying like, these are questions for you too, right? Mm. So when I go in and I'm like, okay, let's talk about, um, let's talk about gender expression, right? And let's talk about um, how pronouns work and how they make us feel about ourselves and others. And to, to go into a congregation of like older white folks that are not that familiar with this, these conversations and to be like, okay you have a gender story. Like, Tell me about the first time uh, you were told that you weren't man enough. Tell me about Mm. the first time you were shamed for not being a woman in the right way. Um, Because that is part of your gender story. And like these questions that we're asking about what it means to be you and what it means to be us are questions that cisgender people need to be asking themselves as well because it breaks us out of this sense of us and them that we get stuck in so much of Mm -hmm. the time. So yeah, I I feel like that's um, a pretty big a pretty big gift that is important at this specific time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of when when we talk about queer liberation and certainly trans liberation, it's not only liberating queer and trans folks, but it's also liberating straight and cis folks as well. Right. Absolutely. And even though that might not necessarily be the ultimate reason, right? Like we actually need liberation for oppressed people because that's what they need. But- mm-hmm. In like sort of, um, it just kind of happens that when trans and queer people are liberated, that straight and cis people are liberated as well. And yep. so um, that's part of the reason why I've just been so interested in these types of conversations because it also frames my myself in a way as a, a white straight um, man to. Mm-hmm. Like what? What? How does this actually change and shaped me? Shape me from these oppressive systems of cisness and mm-hmm. um, heteronormativity and mm-hmm. white supremacy and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So um, yeah, I, I think that whole conversation is really important, even if you're not trans or queer or whatever. Right, and that's so
0: like the we don't recognize how interwoven these things are until a lot of times until it's like too late so like i'm thinking about Hmm. i'm thinking about um the drag bands right like the drag bands that are essentially policing what people are allowed to wear which is not a new thing we had books uh, we had laws on the books up through the 60s and 70s in certain states about like you know you had to wear at least three articles of clothing that were uh related to your assigned sex like this Mm. is not a new thing but like, it's going to affect cisgender people in ways that they don't expect. <laughs> so like we're thinking about the sports bands, right? The sports bands about, um, you know, mm-hmm. trans folks not being able to play on the sports team of the gender that they are. And now we're seeing in Florida that suddenly Florida, uh, the S- Florida sports association is like, Hey, let's actually have, uh, women and girls need to track their menstruation with us yeah, so I that we this. can like, like, right, like this is going to affect everybody. Like this is not something that is just against trans folks or people whose bodies are different. Like it's going to affect everybody because any sort of policing of gender affects every single person, Mm. um, whether you realize it or not.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question. Obviously, there's been so much anti-trans hatred and oppression over the last Mm. few years. And obviously that has been throughout history. But There just seems to be a rise, especially at like a legislative Mm -hmm. level uh, over the last year or two that I I don't know. I just I don't remember it being quite to this level before. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, again, in America, those types of politics have always existed um, to oppress trans people. But there just seems to be something that's like been turned to an 11 here over the last couple of years. Can you talk about I don't want to get into the weeds about like all the shit that people are doing um, to oppress trans people. I'm more interested, how can people support trans people? uh, Like, are there any practical ways that people can support trans people in the midst of all of this anti-trans hatred and oppression that's going on? Maybe it's legislative uh, help, or maybe there's some other uh, organizations or something. But anyway, what are some practical ways that, you know, somebody can pause this episode right now and start, um, you know, doing the good work in the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think two things, two things are... that I would want to talk about. One is sort of the personal and then one is the, the getting involved with policy, right? So let's mm-hmm. talk about the policy one first. The policy thing is really important for people to be involved in policy and what's going on right now in our state legislatures because last year we had a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills and it was like over 300. We are one month into this year's legislative session and we're already at like over 350. <laughs> so like it's already wild and out of control. But what need what we need folks to do is to call their legislators and write their legislators and annoy their legislators on Twitter um, about this stuff because um, it's really, really important um, and especially important if you are a person of faith, of any tradition, that you tell legislators that you are supportive because of your faith. That's mm-hmm. really, really important because mm-hmm. they take that more seriously and we need to make sure that our uh, voice as affirming Christians is just as loud as the people who are not affirming, right? right? So well that, and places. it's just so
1: important to not equate faith with these sort of conservative politics, exactly. right? That you know, that there are people of faith who are trans and 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 certainly support trans people. And yeah. it is just really, really detrimental to all faiths when we just conflate faith with conservative politics.
0: Absolutely. Yes. So the two places that I would tell people to go check out, one is the ACLU, right? The ACLU has a page that's called Mapping Attacks on LGBTQ Rights in the U.S. State Legislature. And you can go, they have a map, you can click on your state. Right now, I think we're at 32 of 50 states have proposed laws right now that we're working on. So basically any state you're in, uh, you're likely to have something that folks are working on there. So check out the ACLU's page. There's also a new organization called Transformations Project, Transformations Project org that is trying to keep track of every single one of these bills and will and has like pretty easy ways that you can contact your legislatures about them um, so both of those places please go there uh, get on their mailing list so that you can get a little email when they ask you to sign a petition or something because these petitions actually matter <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah get involved in policy at your state level because you can make a difference there and it's really really important. So, that's one thing. From the personal side of things, I think one of the most helpful things right now is um interrupting the negative talk about trans people and gender expansive people that is mm-hmm. so prevalent. I was out getting coffee the other day and I was just like sitting having coffee and working on my laptop in a in a um in a cafe, and literally the two women right next to me were talking about how uh horrible trans people were, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, great. this is I'm just like out having coffee. This is not like I'm not on Twitter. this is just out at a cafe
1: and this is like a progressive you know you live in a pretty progressive city too.
0: I, right. I live in Minneapolis, like come on, people <laughs> um and you know, we can say a lot about Minneapolis and the faux progressivity here, but <laughs> right. regardless the point the important thing is we need cisgender folks who are practicing allyship to call things out when they see them. When you're in a conversation and people are starting to say negative things about trans folks, like we need people to stay stand up and be like, actually that's not true. Like, you know, this person is talking about how dangerous it is for trans people to be in bathrooms with cis women. Right. We need somebody to stand up and be like, actually this has been disproven and here's why. And so Mm I, what I'm asking is not just to say for you to, to, do that thing in that moment, which I know is hard for folks that are like myself who are conflict averse Like I know it's tough, Mm -hmm. but also it means that you need to be updated on like what's actually happening. Right. You need to know Mm -hmm. what's going on with the statistics around bathroom stuff in order to be able to have that conversation. Right. So it's not that you need to be like plugged in 24 seven to trans news, (laughs) but like. Get a basic understanding on things like bathroom bills, on like why trans folks should be allowed to play sports, on like why drag bills and bans are bad for everybody. Just get some basic information on that. And you can like go to any of those websites I mentioned, the ACLU or Transformations Project, and they'll help you find that info. And once you have that, you can interrupt those conversations and say like, you know, here's what's actually going on. Here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. That's really important.
1: Mm, Love it. The tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. How do you hope transforming inspires and liberates its readers? Ooh, boy.
0: There's so much. There's so much I could say. I mean, I hope, number one, it it's first and foremost – for trans folks, right? It's first and foremost for the people that need to know, like I did, that they're not alone and that God doesn't hate them and want them to go away. <laughs> um, it need, you know, It's for those folks. And I hope that it's liberating to be able to find that there are other people like you. There are other people that have struggled with the questions that you're struggling with and that there's community out there for you, um, which is, of course, why I started Transmission Ministry Collective. There is community out there for trans Christians. For cisgender folks, for straight folks, I want them to be able to be liberated by seeing a Bible story in a way that they've never seen it before. Mm. I love the moment when people are like, I've heard this story preached on two bajillion times in my life, and I've never thought about it like that. Like Mm. That is the coolest moment to me, the moment when people see that connection between Jesus and Thomas and what that you know, how that connects to trans folks today. The moment when people, um, read a story and go, Oh, I never thought about it like that. (laughs) Like that's all we're trying to do. I think is, is help people understand these foundational stories in a way that helps them love other people. So yeah, Mm. I think that'd be it.
1: I love it. Love it. Austin, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can go to um, austinharkey.com is my website, and that's where you can find personal stuff about me and like uh, where you can get connected with me to do church education and stuff like that. Um, transmission is uh the org that I work for. Um, and if you are a trans or gender expansive person looking for community, that's where to go. But if you are a um a family member or a friend, you can also go there because we have resource lists. So we have a resource list for trans folks, one for family members, and one for pastors and ministry professionals. So if you're like, hey, where do I get books on understanding trans folks? Where do I get books on doing pastoral care with trans folks? Where do I get books mm. on being a partner of a trans person? That's all
1: there. Mm love it love it austin thank you so much this has just been one of my favorite conversations i just think the world uh, of the work that you're doing it's just really really incredible so thank you so much for chatting more about the book and uh, hopefully we can stay connected uh, in the future
0: yeah thanks so much for having me mason
1: If you'd like to connect with Austin and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.